All right, John 6, verses 37 through 46. If you're using a pew Bible, the verses are found on page 76 in the New Testament. All right, hear the word of the Lord. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that, all, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that your steadfast love endures forever and that your mercies are new every morning. Great, great is thy faithfulness. Every morning we find you faithful, Lord. And throughout every day, we taste of your faithful love towards us in innumerable ways, Lord. And and by your mercy, we're able to sense and see and recognize that love. very often. But Lord, most importantly, we thank you that that love has been shown to us and demonstrated and and continues to demonstrate itself in the message of Christ crucified. The giving of your beloved son for the salvation of your chosen people. Lord, that's, that's what we're celebrating as we continue to look at this issue of election and address questions relating to election that have come up in light of the teaching of John 6. Lord, we're simply peering into the depths of your great love, that that great love with which you have loved us, Ephesians 2 says, that love that you have chosen to express and set upon us. Lord, we don't deserve that kindness and we don't deserve that love. And I pray that you would help us rejoice in it, though. Not because we have done enough to earn it, but because Christ has done everything to secure that love for us. Father, let our eyes be fixed upon Christ. Let our hearts rejoice in the truth. And we pray that by your Spirit, 
we would be more conformed to the image of Christ as a result of our worship here this morning. Lord, it's worship unto you. But in our worship, we pray that you would change us. You would mold us more to be a better reflection of your beloved Son, Father. It's for his sake we pray. It's for our good that we pray and that you would be glorified and honored among us. That's why we pray, and we pray to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we've had a a busy couple of weeks, and I don't expect that all of you would remember everything that we covered in the message two weeks ago. Um, So I want to give just a a brief moment of, of recap of where we are in John 6, and then we're going to move into... Uh, questions relating to election that have been sent to me or questions that, that I have personally had to wrestle through on my own in the past uh, concerning issues with election. So, so just as we begin, a brief, a brief summary of John 6. We've been walking through the gospel. As we've been walking through the gospel of John, we've been confronted with some very difficult truths outside of what we've been confronted with in John 6. So in John 3, we we see the need to be born again. And it's not something we can do to ourselves. It's something that has to be done to us by the Spirit of God blowing upon us like the wind. Uh, We've we've wrestled through issues relating to the Sabbath, right? And some of us are still wrestling through that. But... uh, very difficult topic to discuss. We've seen glimpses into the eternal relationships among the persons of the Trinity in John 5. Very, very difficult matters to walk through and to, to understand. Well, another of those truths that we've been looking at is brought to light in John 6, which is the issue of election and the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I will say this from the beginning, if, if you don't sense that as a difficult issue, then you are not understanding what the Bible has to say about it, all right? So if you understand what the Bible says about election and God's sovereignty and salvation, you will sense how difficult it is. If it's not difficult to you, then you have not spent enough time looking at it, all right? Just throw that out there. It ought to feel difficult, and God has given us some guidance in relation to this issue, but he has not chosen to reveal everything to us. We're going to get more into that this morning. Now, this this discussion of the sovereignty of God and salvation and election, it's set within a discussion that Jesus is having with a crowd of Jews who are seeking him in John 6, but they're not seeking him for the right reasons. They, They were ready to make Jesus their miracle-working king, right? The, the king that would provide for them everything that they wanted. But they were not ready to believe in Jesus as their God-appointed Savior. And they were not ready to believe in him for the gift of eternal life. Now, for the crowd, the reason they weren't ready, according to their opinion, and is seen in verse 30, They were not yet convinced that Jesus was worthy of being trusted and believed in, that he needed to do 
other signs that they might see it and believe in him. But as we've seen, Jesus explains in the rest of the chapter that the real reason they were not believing him was not because they had not seen signs, right? Verse 36, it says, I've told you and you have seen me, yet you're still not believing. You've, You've seen me do amazing things already. And even that wasn't enough to make you believe. So if, if it's not an issue of signs and Jesus not doing enough to prove himself to them, then what is the real reason for why they are not believing? That's what Jesus goes on to unpack, and he unpacks this in different ways. We see this in verse 37 where he says that those who were given to him by the Father, they come to him. And so what does that mean then for those who are not coming to him in John 6? It means that they were not given. Because all whom the Father gives me will come to me. Certainty. It happens. They come. Well, this crowd isn't coming. What does that mean? That means that they have not been given. You see this in John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me. No one has the ability to come to me unless something happens first. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then you notice what Jesus says happens to him who is drawn. The Father draws him, and the Son raises him up on the last day. That means everyone whom the Father is drawing to his Son, the Son is raising up to eternal life on the last day. Everyone whom the Father draws, the Son saves. All whom the Father has given to the Son, come to the Son. You see in verse 45, Jesus says, says that all, who, uh, all your sons will be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, what do they do? They come to me. So to hear and to learn from the Father means you come to Jesus. This is exclusive. That's, that's a categorical statement. Jesus says everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who is taught by God comes to Jesus. Well, this crowd wasn't coming to Jesus. What did that mean? That meant they weren't being taught by the Father. And then you see this kind of like the nail in the coffin of this argument or his statements from Jesus in John 6, 65. Jesus says very clearly, this is why I told you, this is why I said to you, no one can come unto me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So if people don't come to Jesus, what does that mean in light of verse 65? It means that it was not granted to them by the Father to come. And to flip that around in a more positive light, those who do come to Jesus, those who do believe in Jesus, according to verse 65, what does that mean? That means the Father has granted it to them to come. The Father's granted them to come. Now, all of this in John 6 is is designed, this whole discussion is designed by Christ to combat the pride and the arrogance that he is being confronted with in this crowd, right? Because you remember, what's this crowd demanding of Jesus? This crowd is demanding for Jesus to prove himself to them, right? They actually think, I keep blowing these bubbles out of my mouth. This is, are you guys seeing that or is it just me? Okay, so I don't need to worry about what you're seeing. All right, maybe my mouth is dry. I don't, I don't know. My goodness. 
Welcome to Oak Ridge. What's this crowd doing? They're actually believing that they have the right to sit in judgment over the Son of God. That they have the right to dictate the terms by which they will accept God's ordained Messiah. You do enough signs for us and then we will believe in you. This whole discussion of election and God's sovereignty and salvation is birthed as a response to that kind of arrogance. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, uh-uh, no, 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 you don't understand. You think you're the ones in control here. You don't get it. You're, you do not dictate the terms here. I've done everything my Father has called me to do in order to demonstrate to you the truth of who I am. Everything the Father has given me to do that would be sufficient to prove to you who I am, I've done it. The reason that is not enough for you is because my Father has not granted for you to see and understand and believe the truth of what you've seen, what I've shown you. In other words, Jesus is, is, is really putting humanity in its proper place in this chapter. They are not in control, and they will not dictate the terms upon which they will submit to God's king. God sets the terms. God establishes the demands. It's up to us only to bow the knee before them. You either accept God's, you either accept God's terms or you don't, and you fall condemned under them. Those are the only two options that any human being has in this world. And that's so it is with this crowd. Jesus is telling them, no, it's not that I didn't do enough to convince you. It's that you weren't given to me to be saved. You're not being drawn by the Father to me that I might save you. You're not being taught by the Father through the things that I've done, through everything I've taught, you, everything I've spoken to you. The Father's not teaching you. That's why you're not coming. You're not the ones in control here. The Father is, in other words. And so Jesus is putting humanity in its proper place by exalting the sovereignty of his Father over and against the pride of man. And I'll tell you what, there is not a doctrine that, that, that bucks up against the pride and arrogance of man any more strongly than the doctrine of election. Now, this teaching of Jesus, it obviously arouses in our hearts and minds certain questions. Questions about God's sovereignty and salvation and election, and, and, and we want to try to work through some of those together this morning, but I just want to remind you that there are some things that we need to keep in mind from the start. Number one, we need to remember that as we're trying to answer these questions on election, God has chosen not to answer all of these questions for us. We have all kinds of questions relating to election, and God has elected not to give us those answers. We need to keep that in mind. We need to begin with recognizing that all of our questions will not have answers to them this side of eternity. And we have to be okay with that. 
And we have to, in that, in that struggle, we have to remember the character of our God and we have to rest in Him when we don't have all the answers that we want. Remember that He is wise and He is good. He is loving. He is gracious. And He's just. And all of that will be exalted through this world and through God's dealings with this world. Now, second reality, so the first reality we need to keep in mind is that God has chosen not to answer all of our questions relating to election. A second really important starting place for us on this issue is the recognition that God is God and we are not. As our creator, God is free to do with us whatever he wants to do, and he will always be in the right. And on the flip side, as his creatures, A, God is not accountable to us. He does not have to give an account of his dealings in this world to us, though we demand him to do that very often. God is not, God is not accountable to us. We are his creatures. And then secondly, we have no right to sit in judgment over what God chooses to do or not do. You remember that is the Holy Spirit's definitive answer to all of our questions on election in Romans 9. The Spirit's definitive answer to all of our questions is God is God and you are not. And who are you to answer back to God? Right, this is uh, Romans 9, 19. If election is true, if it's all up to God's will, then, then how can God find fault with anyone? For who has resisted His will? If He hardens whom He wills and He gives mercy to whom He wills, then why does He find fault with anybody? Well, the Spirit's answer back to that question, that response is, but indeed, O oh man, verse 20, who are you to answer back to God? Who are you as God's creature to sit in judgment over Him? Will the thing molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, will the thing molded sit in judgment over the one who is molding it? Verse 21, does not the potter have power? The, the word there in Greek is really, uh, is really about authority or right. Does not the power have the authority or the right over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Does God have the right as our creator to do that? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And if you don't acknowledge that, you are denying a fundamental aspect of what it means for God to be your creator. It means that he's the one in charge and you're not. Does God our creator not have the authority to choose from the same? So let's bring this into the specific issue of election. Does God our creator not have the authority? Does he not have the right to choose from the same fallen mass of humanity, the same lump, does he not have the right to choose some sinners out of that mass of fallen humanity for salvation? And choose, does he not have the right to choose to leave the rest of that mass for its deserved condemnation? Yes, he has that right. 
And we must realize that fact. That must be a fundamental conviction in our hearts as we approach this issue of election, or we will never be able to accept what the Bible teaches us about election. Now, with that said, let's get into the questions, right? <laughs> the first question that, that I think often comes to mind on this topic is, is simply this. How can election be fair? Or how is it just for God to choose to save some people and not others? How is that fair? For God to say, I'm going to save this group of sinners, and I am not going to save that group of sinners. This is probably the most common question that comes up on this issue, which is why, by the way, we have the definitive answer to this question given to us in the scriptures. It's because this is the most common reaction to the teaching of election that we have Romans 9, 19 to 21, or even from 14 to 18. Is there any injustice in God? Absolutely not. God can have mercy on whom he wills, and he can harden whom he wills, and he will never be unrighteous in doing so or wrong in what he does. It's like what John, this, this is something that we, we, we struggle with, especially as culture and society grows more into a socialized understanding of justice and righteousness and fairness. John Calvin, for example, he, he wrote this in, 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 on this topic. He said in his institutes, God is free from the necessity of imparting the same grace to everyone. God is free from the necessity of imparting the same grace to everyone. In other words, God is free to choose whom he will give grace to and whom he will not give grace to. Do we agree with that? But that truth is especially clear when we remember what every sinner actually deserves from the hand of God. Right? So we're, we're asking the question about fairness. We're asking, is election fair? I think we need to start answering that question, first of all, by reminding ourselves of what is fair. If God treated us only according to fairness and justice, what would we all deserve? Yeah, it would be universal condemnation. That is what we deserve. And I'll, and I'll even amp it up a little bit. We deserve that from the point of conception. All of humanity deserves to be consigned over to the just and eternal judgment of God. Because that is what we have earned. Romans 3.23, all have done what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not only by the countless and innumerable sins that you personally commit in your life, but primarily by our first sin in Adam. We are a fallen human race. You sin because you were born a sinner. 
You did not become a sinner after you were born. You were born to the fallen race of Adam. Adam sinned and we all sinned in him. And you know what we inherit from our forefather Adam? We inherit what that sin deserves. We inherit death. That's why we struggle. That's why there's pain. That's why we have to mourn when loved ones die. Because of sin. Because that is what sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 We sinners who have gone awry... We've missed the mark, radically swerved from God's original purpose for our existence. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And according to Romans 6.23, what do we all deserve as a result of that? We deserve the wages that we've earned with our sinfulness. We deserve death. Eternal separation from God and from the glory of His might. So if we're asking about what is fair... That's what's fair. What's fair is for every sinner to receive his or her full and just reward for sin, which is death. So when it comes to fairness and justice, the most surprising piece here is not that God doesn't choose to save everybody. Excuse the double negative, but I couldn't figure out how else to write it. When it comes to fairness and justice, the real issue here is not that God doesn't choose to save everybody. When we're talking about fairness and justice, the real issue is that God chooses to save anybody. And this is the point behind the gospel. This is why the Son of God came. This is why the death of the Son of God under the wrath and judgment of His Father. This is why that matters for us. Because it's through that that God demonstrates His righteousness in justifying sinners and saving them for His own purposes. Now, when most people ask this question, though, they're thinking of something more particular or more more specific. Everyone who has a problem with election acknowledges the fact that all sinners deserve to go to hell. But when most people ask that question about fairness in relation to election... Their thinking is that it's unfair for God only to choose to save some. That that's the point of unfairness. Right? It's not the general idea that God, that, that God is uh, saving some and other people won't be saved. That's not generally what's at, what's at the, the root of most people's issue with election. It's that God has made the choice about who will be saved and who won't be saved. How is that fair? Specifically, individually. Well, let's think about that for just a moment. First of all, I'm going to acknowledge a reality to all of you, and it's going to be very dissatisfying to you. There's no reason given to us in Scripture for why God chooses to save some sinners and not others, other than the fact that that is His good pleasure. It is his good pleasure to do it. Jesus says in Matthew 11, it's his wisdom to operate like that. So we don't know about the specifics of why he chooses one over the other, but let's think about the basic supposition there. 
that for God to choose to save an individual and not choose to save another individual, that is unfair. Because is that not treating people with partiality? And doesn't the Bible say God is impartial? How is that just and fair? Well, let's think about that for just a moment. If God chooses to leave some sinners in their sin so that one day they reap the rewards of what they have done, has he wronged them? Has he treated them unfairly if he chooses to leave sinners to their just condemnation? No, he is not. And if at the same time he chooses to take from that mass of fallen, sinful, hell-deserving sinners, he chooses to take a people to redeem from what they deserve in order to demonstrate to them and through them just how gracious he truly is, has he wronged them or has he treated them unfairly? So if God passes over a sinner and says, I'm going to leave you to what you deserve, has he wronged that sinner? If he chooses another sinner and says, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, I'm going to bring you out from what you deserve, and I'm going to redeem you from your fallenness for my own glory, has he wronged that person? No, he has not wronged that person. He's simply chosen to give mercy to that person, which is his right to do, isn't it? God's not being unfair to anyone in election. The sinner gets what the sinner deserves to the praise of the glory of God's justice. God's justice, his righteousness will be magnified over every single sinner that refuses to repent and believe in the gospel. So the sinner gets what the sinner deserves to the praise of the glory of God's justice. The elect get what they don't deserve. They get mercy to the praise of the glory of His grace, but to neither one has God been unfair or unjust. So election does not violate the principles of fairness or justice on God's part. It exalts and magnifies and demonstrates the glory of His justice and the magnitude of His mercy. So that's the question, how is election fair? Number two, what about free will? What about free will? Does election and God's sovereignty in salvation violate the reality of human free will? I've heard this question many times over the last 18 years since I've embraced Reformed theology. the struggle here comes down to, to thinking that somehow election and God's sovereignty strips away from human, human beings the freedom or the ability to make choices. As if election and God's sovereignty and salvation makes us nothing more than puppets on a string being manipulated by a sovereign God. Right? God, we're just automatons or, or actually robots, and God is the one animating everything and doing everything because he's the one who's ultimately sovereign. Right? 
So if our interpretation of John 6, is correct, where Jesus says man is utterly unable to come to him unless God draws him, then doesn't that mean that human beings don't have free will and don't freely choose to follow Jesus on their own? Well, in order to answer that question, we first have to define what we mean by free will. What do we mean by free will? If by free will we mean that man, is, that man has autonomous control over himself and his destiny the way that God does, then no, man does not have free will. If what we mean by that is that man has absolute freedom to choose autonomously, that means by himself and by his own power and according to his own uh, governance of himself, if we mean by free will that man has the absolute freedom to choose autonomously whether or not he will obey the gospel, then no, man does not have free will like that because Jesus tells us very plainly in John 6, that man doesn't have that capacity. You don't have the ability to do that on your own. So you don't have that free will. You don't stand in a position of neutrality with God on one side and the devil on the other and God's thrown his lot in and the devil's thrown his lot against you and now it's up to you to make the decision. And God's just waiting over there hoping you're going to choose rightly. Man, I'm glad my salvation wasn't dependent upon that because I would never have been saved. I loved my sin. I loved my life. I loved the glory of being recognized as an awesome inside linebacker. I loved being able to throw an 83-mile-an-hour fastball and have a three-foot drop in my curve. I loved having the home run record in my high school. I loved the fact that I owned the place. I could do whatever I wanted. Life was going good. I had no struggles. Everybody was my friend. I loved all that. And if it were up to me to choose to leave all of that in order to embrace the life of suffering that following Christ has, has thrown upon me, I would never have chosen to leave that lifestyle. We don't have free will like that. We are not in a position of neutrality. And it's not up to us to determine our destiny and decide our fate, ultimately. You know that, what's that, what's that, that poet, uh, Invictus, who, who wrote that? Uh, I, am the, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He wrote that in defiance to the thought of God being the sovereign controller of all. So we don't mean free will by that. But if what we mean by free will is that God has given every human being the freedom to act upon choice, then we must say, yes, man does have free will in the sense that we have the capacity to choose freely whatever we want to do. We have the capacity to freely choose whatever we want. And we make choices like that every day, right? As creatures made in God's image, we have been given what is called the natural ability to make choices. And you do it every day. You chose what you were going to wear this morning. You chose how fast you were going to drive your car in getting here. You chose whether or not you were going to honk at that person going 15 miles an hour under the speed limit or going to just passively, patiently sit behind them. 
You make choices about what you're going to eat and where you're going to go and what you're going to do and who you're going to marry and where you're going to work and where you're going to go to college and school or if you're going to go to college. We make choices all the time. We even make choices in our relationship with God. Every single human being on the planet uses his or her natural ability to make choices to decide whether or not they will love and obey God. Every human being decides that. Listen to how the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith puts it. I'm just going to refer to that as the 1689 from now on, okay, for this morning. 1689 in, in chapter 9, paragraph 1, it says, God has endued the will of man, that is, he's given the ability to the will of man. He's, given the, he's give, endued the will of man with the natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. That is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Now, this is one of the most reformed, pro-election, God-sovereignty-exalting documents that has ever existed in the history of the Christian church. And yet in this document, they labor to affirm the fact that man does have this natural ability to make choices. The ability to freely act upon choice. God's placed that within us as part of our creation. We all have this natural ability and power to freely choose what we want to do. And it's never forced or coerced by anything that is outside of us. In other words, God doesn't determine whether you're going to use your will for good or evil. You do that. You freely make that choice. That's part of the natural liberty that you have to act upon choice. So when we're talking about whether or not election violates free will, the issue here is not whether human beings have freedom to make choices. No one argues that. Human beings make choices all the time. The issue is whether as sinners, we still have the ability to use that freedom to make the right choices. As sinners, do we have the ability to use our will to make the right choices? We all have the power to make choices, but can we of our own strength and ability choose the right choice? That's the, that's the point of debate. Now, if we were looking at John 6.44 and what Jesus says there, or if we were looking at Romans 8, verse 7, or if we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, or if we were looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and we were to ask the question, do we in and of ourselves have the right to make the, have the ability to make the right choices? We would have to say the scriptures say no. We don't have that ability. We still have the freedom to choose what we want, but we don't have the ability to use that freedom to choose what is truly good. Okay? Now, are you guys following me here? Yeah? Okay. So, let me go a little deeper on this issue of the will. When the Bible talks about the will, the Bible describes the will, the power to act on choice, as a tool of a human being. So, the will is an instrument that is used by a person. 
The will doesn't make its own choices. The will doesn't do its own thing. The will doesn't cause you to do anything. You use your will as a tool to do, to do things. So the will is a tool or an instrument of the human mind and heart. It's probably a bad way to describe that. This isn't really what the Bible means by mind and heart. It means you, spirit, your being. In your soul, the, the will is a tool of your soul. That means that you will only ever use your will to choose to do what you think is the best choice. Or you will only ever use your will to choose to do what you really want to do. So whatever the mind thinks is the best option, that's the direction that the will is going to be going. Whatever the heart desires, whatever your soul craves and longs for, that the will of your will is going to be used as an instrument to get it. All right? So the will is a tool. Now let me ask a question. What does a fallen, depraved, sin-riddled, hell-deserving sinner want to do? To sin. What does a condemned, fallen, depraved sinner think is the better option? Serving God or serving self? Self. Every time. Every single time. Because as fallen creatures, what we've inherited from Adam is this desire to live autonomously, to, to rule ourselves, to be outside of God's control and domination, to be independent from him and to, and to be consumed with those passions and, and lustful desires of the flesh. That's what, we, that's what we were born with, a natural inclination to that. Listen to how God describes us in our fallen condition in Genesis 6-5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Read that again. This is God's evaluation of fallen mankind's heart. Every single person who belongs to fallen humanity, this is God's evaluation of your heart in and of yourself. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Now, you really can't get more descriptive than that, can you? Every intention of your heart is evil. So not just your actions, but the intentions that are going on inside. Those desires and those yearnings that drive your actions. God looks upon your heart and says, every one of them is evil. And not just evil some of the time, but it's only evil. It's continually evil. You are, you are an, an, an in and of yourself as a fallen creature. You are an unending cesspool of depravity. And there is nothing that you do that is not tainted by sin in and of yourself. Nothing. It's not mixed with the little good alongside the bad. It's not merely every now and then that we choose to make wrong choices. It's, it's that we have hearts that are only, always, and continually filled with evil intentions. Intentions. 
Now, until something radical changes that heart, until, until a radical change takes place that converts that heart from craving evil and changes it into something that craves good, what choices will a person continually make? Until that evil, depraved heart is changed, what will that person want to do? Pursue evil. <clears throat> and you know what? Pursuing evil can even be under the guise of sitting in a, in a church pew. You don't have to be drinking and, and rioting on the streets in order to be expressing your depravity. It can be in a hypocritical faith that puts a, puts a good face on for everyone else to see, but is not genuine at home or even just genuine in the heart. This is, uh, this is Jeremiah 13, 23. God asks his people, these sin sinful, depraved people who are going to experience judgment, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or can the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That word accustomed there, it means to be, uh, to be trained in evil. So if your heart has been trained in evil, God says right here, it is impossible for you to do good. Just as impossible as it is for an Ethiopian to change his skin color or a leopard to change his spots. It is impossible for you to choose to do good. This is what Augustine said. Augustine said, in, this fallen, in our fallen state, all of humanity is uh, non passe, non picare. I'm sure, uh, <laughs> I'm sure the, the DeCaros could correct my pronunciation there. But Augustine says, mankind as a fallen sinner is non passe, non picare. What does that mean? Not able not to sin. And he's right. He got that from Scripture. As fallen, depraved creatures, we are not able not to sin in and of ourselves. Something radical has to take place in us in order for us to, to break free from that trajectory of evil. And what is that radical change? John 3, we must be born again. <laughs> you must be made a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The wind of the Holy Spirit must blow upon you and make you something new. Otherwise, you're going to continue going down that trajectory of evil because that's what you want to do. That's what you think is best. And until your mindset is changed, until your heart is converted to see that sin for what it really is, to see what it's going to cost you to live that life of sin, to see the hell and the condemnation that is coming upon those who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, when, you, when your mind is open to see that, then you can finally turn away from it. But you can't turn from it until you see it. And you can't see it until God enables you to see it. So free will remains. Every person is always free to choose whatever he or she wants to do. But until there is a saving, redeeming work of God performed in the heart, that is, until God removes our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh, hearts that hate sin and love God and actually desire to do His will, until that happens, our free will will always be a servant of an evil, sin-loving heart. We're probably just going to end on this question. We won't get to the third one for today. It'll pass it on to next week. 
But I want, I want you to know something. God can stand before the world of sinners holding out His hand to them all day long. Pleading with them, calling them, commanding them even to turn from their sin and to come to Jesus Christ, His Son, in order to be saved. God can stand there all day long, but until their hearts are actually changed to respond to that call, they're never going to come. Until their hearts are set free by the power of God to their enslavement to sin, then sinners will never come. They will just keep trying to slap God's hand away. All day long, I held out my hand to an, to, to an obstinate, ignorant, obstinate people. And they're just going to keep slapping that hand away until they're given a heart that loves the Lord and is willing to embrace that hand. But there's another part to this question. This is what we're going to end on. Okay, we can, we, can, we can understand how it is, I hope you can understand, how it is that election and God's sovereignty and salvation is not a violation of free will because God permits all men to do exactly what they want to do. And until that heart is changed and they're given new desires, they're not going to want to do things that are pleasing to God. So everyone has free will. Everyone operates according to free will. But here's the question. How is it that God's work of sovereignly saving a sinner is not a violation of their free will? Because if God is changing their heart and giving them new desires, isn't that, isn't that leading them to do something that they weren't choosing to do? They weren't willing to do that. Well... I think maybe you understand the answer to that, but the answer to that question is, is, is no, that's not a violation of our free will because of how God accomplishes this work in our lives. Remember, the will is a tool of the creature. And so whatever the creature is, the will is going to be subservient to that. The creature is evil, the will is going to be subservient to evil intentions. The creature is made to be a lover of God the will now becomes an instrument of loving and expressing that love. Listen to the 1689, paragraph 4 of chapter 9. When God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace, listen to this, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Look at that. When God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. Believers in this room, you know the glory of what it's like to be set free from your bondage to sin. You remember what it was like for that that pack of sin to fall off your shoulders and to feel the liberating effect of the Spirit of God renewing your soul and making you understand the, the, the realities of God and the beauties of the Gospel. You remember the liberty and the freedom that you experienced in that moment. That was the work of God in your soul. In your soul. <laughs> He frees him from this natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone 
enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Let me ask you this question. If it's up to you to use your will to determine your eternal destiny, whether or not you will follow God or you will continue to live a life of sin and reject Him, if it's up to your will to choose that, to make that choice, who ultimately is responsible for your salvation? If God makes the provision for your salvation and holds it out to you as an option and says, do you want it? And you say, let me think about it. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, you know what, God? I Actually, yes, I'll take that. Who's ultimately responsible for you being saved? You are. Your will is. You made a choice. You, made, you moved in a certain direction that other sinners did not choose to go. And you did it of your own power. You did it of your own strength. You did it by your own ability to understand the ramifications of the gospel. You made your choice and God is so happy for you. You made the right choice. Good for you. Is that really how salvation works? Is that really by grace alone? No, it's not. That's a form of Catholic teaching. Some, that, remember the prevenient grace discussion a few weeks ago? Some people believe God awakens you and brings you to that point, frees you from sin just enough where you come to the point where you can make that decision. But then it's up to you at that point. You know what that is? That's, 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 that's synergism. That's God working and, and you working to accomplish your salvation. That's, that's a form of what Roman Catholicism teaches. It's just not as elaborate but in its substance, it's the same. Now, that's not how God saves us. When he saves us, he frees us from our natural bondage under sin. And by grace alone, he enables us. He gives us the power and the ability to freely will to do that which is spiritually good. This is Philippians 2, 12 to 13, right? Paul says, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You work. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But if you're able to do that, who's already at work in your heart? God is. God is. He's the sovereign one. And so God's sovereign work is not a violation of our will. It is a work of liberating our will liberating us from our enslavement to sin so that we are finally free to willingly follow God. That's how salvation works. And so therefore, no, election, God's sovereignty and salvation is not a violation of man's free will. It's a liberation of that will so that it can be used rightly. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And, uh, I thank you that you get all the glory from our salvation and we get none. Lord, we would have it no other way. Not to us. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name, give glory. To your name, be the glory, Lord. I, I know that these 
this topic can be very difficult and, and prickly for us, Lord. But I do thank you that you have revealed certain truths in your word that help us navigate the challenges relating to this doctrine. Lord, please help us sense the glory of it. If we are a believer in this room, that means that you have drawn near to us, Lord. You have quickened our hearts. You have awakened us to grace. And if you've begun that good work in our lives, will you not complete it? Will you not bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus? Lord, that's, that's our hope. That's what we rejoice in. So please help us in light of the teaching this morning to rejoice in the truth. May we not hide our struggles from you, Lord. Help us deal with them honestly in your presence. And we pray that you would be very merciful to us in, in, in helping us humbly approach your word and bow the knee to what you've revealed is true. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Would you be with us, prepare our hearts as we get ready to celebrate and worship at the table of our Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.